0: This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by PicoBrew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico brewing systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew, And by Craftmeister and BTF for
1: When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose
0: Kraftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Want to make the jump to all grain brewing but don't want to spend thousands of dollars? Brewcraft USA has the answer for you. The five gallon grain father system lets you mash, sparge, boil, and chill with its all in one design. Available exclusively where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com.
1: NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs, with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S., and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at Pro.NicoBrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his kilt.
0: Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrew experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer with strange ideas.
0: Yes, he certainly is. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom, testing it out to see what's worth your time and what isn't.
1: Yeah, I think that's just mostly an excuse for you to tinker.
0: Well, it's an excuse to drink beer is what it is. I'll give you that. All right. So on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub to
1: discuss the wonderful world of hypocrisy, competitions, and where to catch Denny shortly. And from there, we're going to head to the lab to announce our second experiment. And finally, back to the
0: Bay Area to talk with Nick of the Yeast Bay about what makes his yeast so magical. Yeah, and I'm not all that short. So, And finally, we'll hit you with another round of Ask Denny and Drew, where we see if we can come up with answers to your questions that are, are good enough so that you might believe them. And finally, we'll close out the show with our quick tip of the week. Now, we want you all to know about uh, Patreon. Uh, you can support us there by giving us uh, any amount of money that you feel like. Give us a penny. Give us a dollar. Give us a million bucks. Then we'll stop doing this, and you can get on with your life. What do we do with the money? Well, besides funding the podcasts and our experiments, we fund the experiments of our Igors and the charity of choice. Now, it's not just our choice. It's your choice, too. You can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and give us your thoughts on what charity is deserving of our and your money. There's a lot of choices out there, so let us know what you think. We'll be announcing the decision in a few weeks. All right, so
1: now for some uh, listener feedback, uh, the listener mail segment. Uh, We got a bit of feedback from the last episode to share, uh, really all about the Brew Year's resolutions. Uh, And it seemed like the most common response to the Brew Year's resolutions were, we need to do more cleaning, more organizing, more brewing, and finally moving from bottles to kegs. So really, it sounds like everybody in this hobby is a disorganized fool, so we highly appreciate the idea that everybody is trying to get more organized, and I hope that you guys do just about as well as Danny and I are going to do with our Brew Year's resolutions. I have good faith in everybody today. Yeah, man. Uh, I,
0: you know, I've I've actually started like getting mine into my head so I can implement them, and I've actually started on one of them. I played some of my instruments the other day, so there you go.
1: There you go. But don't forget, uh, I think, by the way, now that uh, Lemmy from Motorhead has uh, passed away, I think... I don't want black Sabbath on the ukulele. I want some motorhead. Yeah. Ace of spades.
0: You know, I don't know that I've ever even heard any motorhead dude. Seriously. (laughs) Seriously. It's just, you know, not my style, but, uh, I'll see what I can do for you. How's that? That's as far as I'll go. I'll see what I can do. There you go. Lemmy's a God.
1: Uh, but also speaking of people passing away, we had some really good uh, feedback from the BrewTube community out there who appreciated our shout out, uh, to their loss. Uh, and you know what, uh, I'm grateful to do that, and I'm grateful that uh, people are banding together as a community. So that was nice. And then finally, we did also hear back from folks about the explosive tasting segment that we did uh, last week with Alex. Uh, people, some people were concerned, mostly uh, out of uh, fear of whether or not Alex was going to be okay with us using the audio. Uh, and I just want to reassure everybody, we triple-checked with Alex because... Yeah, really, we don't want anybody to come on the show and be embarrassed or feel like,
0: oh God, why did I do that? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll never bushwhack anybody, man. That's just that's just not right, you know. Um, if we do an interview with you or uh, ask you some questions, we will definitely uh, make sure that you're cool with us putting it on the air before we do it. I do have one exception to that. Yes, uh,
1: Carlos uh, Carlos Burrito of uh, Anheuser Busch InBev. If I can bushwhack him, I'm bushwhacking him.
0: Carlos Burrito.
1: Brito. Oh, He's Brito. The, the Brazilian head of anheuser busch InBev.
0: Oh, okay. Well, if that's what uh, you want to do, I'll let you do it. How's that?
1: And it's coming soon to Experimental Brewing. Hard-hitting beer journalism. <laughs> or not.
0: <laughs> or not, yeah. Hey, I got an idea, man. How about if we get out of here, head down to the pub and have a beer? I think I could do that. I think you can, too. We'll be right back from the Experimental Home Brewing Pub. experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town USA having a couple beers now as we're recording this it's New Year's Eve so I figured uh, it was time for something special I just uh, brewed my 493rd batch of beer so I decided for New Year's Eve I would pull out one of the few bottles I have saved from my 400th batch and test it out it's a uh, Belgian quad uh, Whatever that really turns out to be, got a ton of D180 syrups and muscovado sugar. Comes out to about 12% alcohol, which is a lot stronger beer than I normally drink. But hey, it's New Year's Eve. What do you have today, Drew? Time
1: time for something special. But hold on, I, I want to double check on something. Okay. Now this was batch 400.
0: Batch 400. Brewed, right. uh, I, I remember it was brewed, well, actually, I have ProMash here in front of me, so I can see that it was brewed on May 27th of 2011. Uh,
1: there you go. Now, do you, do you only bottle the Century beers, or do you bottle a little bit of every day?
0: No, 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 I, I only bottle very, very special beers because I'm just too freaking lazy to be bothered to bottle. That's why I stopped entering competitions, you know? Uh, But I decided that this being a pretty strong beer and uh, being a a kind of commemorative beer, I wanted to try and uh, have some around for my 500th batch. And I'm pleased to say that after four years, I still have four bottles left. So uh, I'm hoping to maybe hit batch number 500 sometime in the spring or early summer and uh, break out the rest of the batch number 400 for that to see how it goes and then wait until you get to batch 600 to have the final bottles of batch 500. Uh yeah, probably so, assuming I'm still alive at batch 600. Well, we'll do our best for that one. Thanks, man. I right. I could use your help. So, what are you having today?
1: Well, just because you know I have to I have to tweak you because yes. it is New Year's yes. and I can't I can't ever live without doing that to you. I decided uh I got a great gift from my sister and my brother-in-law uh, who live in Florida, and it's from Funky, Brewta, sorry, Funky Buddha Brewing Company of uh, Overland Park, I think, or Oakland Park, uh, Florida. Yeah, Oakland Park, Florida, which is between Fort Lauderdale and Pompano Beach over there on the East Coast. And it's right up your alley, buddy, because it is a Funky Buddha Sweet Potato Casserole Strong Ale.
0: You know, compared to some of the beers that you come up with, that doesn't actually sound too bad. But I just
1: want I just want to put it out there. You've been giving me crap over this Fluffernutter beer idea that. Yes, I had,
0: yes, yes, the Fluffer which, which is really
1: peanut butter and marshmallow. Which, and
0: which now I you, don't now, uh, Yeah, I don't like well, peanut butter and marshmallow, man. Well, yeah, but now you're saying, "Oh, a beer with sweet potatoes and marshmallows is okay?" What the hell? I like sweet potatoes and marshmallows. What can I say? Oh. <laughs> That's oh, just oh. the way it is. I see.
1: So so the value of a beer idea is all on whether or not you actually like Ingredients in the taste. Absolutely. Well, poo on you, buddy.
0: <laughs> so, uh, so Drew, what's going on in the beer life this week? All right,
1: well, first, I have some pimping to do for my club because, uh, well, that's what we do. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> well, what, what kind of club is this? It's a special kind of ca- club in California. Yeah. So, All right, last episode, we talked about the loss of the Brewtubers uh, and uh, the public said, or time for another one, uh, and how they are memorializing uh, their loss. So back in 1999, when I joined the Maltese Falcons, I learned to brew from a guy named Doug King. And uh, this was doing all-grain brewing at the club shop. Yay, good. And I finally got, I think it was batch five or six when I did my first all-grain at home. Or no, actually, that was my first kegs. Uh, and the beer I produced was awesome. Like, it made me proud. It was that first time that I got more than just the newbie chuffness from, hey, I made beer. It was like, I made really good beer. And I wanted to give some of it to Doug so that I could get his approval, right? You know, Because that's what we do. We seek external approval when we don't have enough self-confidence. Uh, and so I went to our club meeting. Only to find out that Doug had passed away in a motor accident on the way to the Northern California Home Brewing Festival. And he was carrying all the club's banned equipment. So, for a few years, we had a tasting party on his birthday, uh, which is in January. And we kept sampling his wares until they just didn't exist anymore. And so, we decided to keep his crazy brewing legacy alive. Uh, We started a competition in his name called the Doug King Memorial Specialty Experimental and Lager Competition. Uh, It's a a set of styles that reflect the things that he was known for. He was really known for a beer called Doug Weiser, which he called the Beer of Kings. And it actually landed pretty close when Anheuser-Busch analyzed it once for us. It landed pretty close to their actual internal specs for Budweiser. And he did all that with two buckets with a bunch of holes drilled in it. So, and he would do things like throw potatoes or tortillas into the beer. So very experimental and probably, you know, part of the reason why I am the way that I am. But (laughs) entries are closing uh, rapidly. Uh, They're due on January 9th, which is just going to be a couple of short days after this episode uh, first premieres. But uh, you can find all the details for the competition on MaltosFalcons.com. And I really hope that uh, some of you guys get a chance to enter because there's a lot of really cool competition uh, or really cool categories in the competition. That you won't normally find in a regular uh,
0: competition. So you're going to enter your fluffer nutter beer? No, sadly, won't be ready in time. Oh, bummer, bummer, bummer. I would uh, love to see what the reaction to that was. So, so uh, well, it looks like the uh, brewery acquisitions are continuing, and uh, you know we've discussed this a lot. So we'll try and make this quick for all of you. But the, the most recent. Situation with uh, Anheuser-Busch uh, InBev uh, inquiring Breckenridge Brewery kind of deserves some comment, don't you think?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I know we promised not to talk about this after we talked about it for the first two episodes, but this is kind of one of those things that interests me in what's going on in the craft beer world right now. So, and this one has a unique angle to it because Breckenridge is part of a bigger group and I think they just sold off Breckenridge, but Wincoop is still remaining independent and a couple of other things. But the part that really strikes me as interesting about all of it is that back when Elysium was first acquired in the, the thing that kind of kicked off the whole year of brewery acquisitions up in Seattle, uh, in an interview with the Denver Post uh, newspaper, the brewmaster and general manager of Breckenridge Brewing Company, uh, Todd Usury, I think, I, I don't know how to say his last name, but uh, Todd, he was quoted as saying, The big thing to me is the craft beer industry was built on individuals and stories. When breweries uh, sell out, I think there is some serious authenticity that is lost and that the brand loses. We're not corporate. We are entrepreneurial and individual. Now, what's really interesting about that is after the sale was announced, uh, ABI did their usual PR dance, which they do every time they buy one of these breweries, and they trotted Todd out to deliver the typical oh, the beer will remain unchanged, the people involved will be unchanged, yada, 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 BS. So it's the same line every time. Go look it up. In every news story that you'll see, eventually there's a PR press release from somebody connected with the brewery that says exactly these sorts of things. So, I mean, interestingly to me, not only is there that sort of, oh, well, it's uh, hypocrisy going on in that, in that sort of, conflict of statements. Uh, But also, the real concern circles back to exactly what we had talked about, and it's reflected in another one of his quotes, where he complained that uh, Anheuser-Busch's acquisition of Elysium was going to make it even harder for them to get into a major retail chain, because now ABI and their distributors could come and say, oh, well, hey, you want craft beer? We have Elysium and offer that as an alternative. Well, so to that, all I can say is, uh, well, I wonder who's the alternative now. At least they're not going to have any more distribution problems.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, uh, it, to me, it just, I mean, yeah, hypocrisy is kind of going light on them. Uh, if uh, they didn't want to do this, they didn't have to do it. you know. If they, and if they are in a position where they had to sell because they needed the money that bad, then they should have couched it like that and said, hey, look, we didn't want to do this, but we had to, and at least we'll still be around. But, well, and you know, what, what well, gets what can- me is that everybody is directing their ire toward Anheuser-Busch, which, you know, is not necessarily unwarranted. And there are people going, well, I'm not going to be buying that brewery's beers anymore. And, and I understand okay. that. But, yeah, right. That's That's your theory. I'm not. Quite there, but uh, still don't remember that it takes two to tango. Uh, it, it's not Anheuser-Busch buying up these breweries uh, against the brewery's will. So,
1: yeah, these aren't forced buyouts because these, these aren't public companies for the most right. part. Uh, well, here's, here's my other thing: is that so, in looking at some of the stuff about the record sale, what it really seems like is a lot of it was based around the idea that, well, we needed the money to be able to expand. Well, here's my question. Why the hell do you have to keep expanding? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, when did, when did the world of craft beer become all about, uh, oh, we have to be in 50 states? Uh, I don't know. That's me. Well, yeah. Uh, I
0: mean, you know, I, I mean, and you can't, I mean, everybody has a different business plan. You really can't criticize them for that, you know? It, just because their business plan isn't your business plan, that's fine. But, you know, is this the only way they can do it? Okay. So we've, we spent way too much time on something we said we weren't going to talk about anymore. So let's just, let's just leave it as what it is. Let people make up their minds and move on to something a lot more fun. Shall we?
1: Well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, you're going to be in Colorado having an adventure, so why don't you tell us about
0: it? Yeah, um, next week, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I will be in Vail at the Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wine Festival, and boy, there's one to try and live through, uh, and or maybe liver through. <laughs> well, I,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm just... I'm I'm laughing at the thought of you at a at a big beers festival since uh, big beers aren't your thing.
0: Well, they used to very much be my thing, but uh, for for various age and medical related reasons, I've really had to limit my intake of them. But it uh, doesn't mean I don't enjoy them still. So I will be taking many many very very small samples of all these beers. Uh, I'm going to be doing a. A seminar there uh, based on the one that uh, that you and I do, uh, although kind of like with my own special slant, because you won't be there, so I can really make fun of you then. It sounds like yeah. it's going to be a great festival. It's at the Cascade Vail Cascade Resort, I believe it is. Uh, I think that there are maybe some tickets still left for some of the seminars, but uh, I know that a lot of the events, the tastings and the beer dinners and stuff like that are already sold out. But if you're in the area and you want to spend a weekend at a beautiful resort with some really incredible beers, come on by, make sure you say hi if you're there.
1: Well, I think it would be more worthwhile to go to just to see if you end up looking like a frozen hippie popsicle like the end of The Shining. <laughs>
0: That that might very well be, you know. I I guess I'll have to practice my. Here's Denny. Eish. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's get these beers sucked down. Uh, get out of here, back to the lab, and talk about the uh, next experiment coming up, huh?
1: All right, let's do it. All right. <laughs> All right. We've left the pub and we are now at the labs at Casa Verde in Black Tie, Oregon. And for us, so we're going to talk about our second experiment. And for our second experiment, we're leaving yeast behind and we're going to the hop side of the, of the fence.
0: Yay. So now, yeah,
1: I know, Denny's favorite and Oregonian favorite. That's right. So this experiment was actually suggested to us by one of our Igors, uh, Jim Leininger. And therefore it's also his recipe. Uh, I'm really happy that we're getting the Igors involved in uh, designing some things early on and, uh. Hopefully, if you want, you can join the Igors too and make your own uh, proposals. So what's the experiment? Well, it's been stated that thanks to the chemical properties of all the uh, aromatic essential oils and hops, that the way that we're adding our hops late into the boil or uh, even later than that is causing us to potentially lose a fair amount of aroma, uh, namely from our hot hop whirlpools. So when I first started brewing, I think when Danny first started brewing too, because we started about the same Mm -hmm. time, if you wanted if you wanted hop aroma your primary strategy was drop a bunch of hops into the kettle at the very last minute give them a spin and then immediately start chilling your beer uh to you know be able to you know go forth and make beer and get uh, get the beer out of the danger zone and get the yeast to work uh so you had the least risk possible So recently that's changed a little bit now you're seeing people talk about oh well We want to do these hop whirlpools, but we're going to take a lesson from like Russian River or Firestone Walker, and we're going to do a hot whirlpool that's been partially chilled. So the recent strategies have said, okay, well, turn the flames off on your kettle, partially chill the beer, get it down into the 170 range, so about 76 C, before adding your hops to the whirlpool, and then go and whirlpool it and let it stand for 10, 20 minutes, right? So it's a great Great theory. Uh, The idea is that you're preserving more of the oils, and you should be able to get a finer, richer hop aroma from the same hop dosing. So, but, there are further suggestions that basically say, our oils that we're wanting to preserve from the hops are volatile to around 140 Fahrenheit or 60 C. So an even newer tactic suggests that instead of going down to 170, that you'll get even better hop aroma and preserve more volatiles by chilling all the way down to 120 Fahrenheit or 49C before adding your hops and doing a whirlpool. So, why bother with all this? Well, we are in the middle of a giant period of the IP of everything where people are trying to maximize hop flavor and aroma of our beer. And since we've moved out of the epic macho stage of maximum IBU damage to the palate, people are trying to figure out ways to pack in more hop flavor without increasing the number of IBUs. And so one of the problems is when you do those hot whirlpools, like the really hot ones, you're somewhat still picking up bitterness because you're still getting isomerization of uh, alpha acids at that point. So in theory, not only does 120 give you more volatile oils in the beer, it also gives you less bitterness contributed by those late addition hops so you can better control your profile and get a very hoppy beer with a more restrained bitterness
0: yeah you know and it's it's interesting some people that oh uh, well, for instance there's a there's a little brewery i consult for and he's been experimenting with whirlpool hopping and i suggested that he uh, maybe go to a lower temperature i think he was at 170 or 180 uh, and when I suggested that he try a lower temperature, his reaction was, Well, I'm really afraid of infection if I dry hop it, you know, below one sixty, which is the pasteurization, or if I add whirlpool hops below one sixty, which is about where pasteurization occurs. And you know, and I, the whole time I'm thinking, But dude, you dry hop the crap out of your beers. You don't seem to worry about it then. So anyway, so if some of you out there have that same worry, uh don't try it. It's just beer, you know?
1: Yeah. So Yeah, I mean I mean really these I mean these things are still sitting in hot wort.
0: Yeah. They may not
1: pasteurize everything, but you really you do throw those things into your keg or carboy cold. Yeah. So, so why worry about yeah. it?
0: So let's uh let's let's give a, a little rundown here on how this experiment is gonna work. The question that we're asking is does steeping at a reduced whirlpool temperature of 120 degrees Fahrenheit improve the hop character over more traditional brewing practices of adding the hops just post-boil, right? Uh, The hypothesis that we're working with is that there will be a qualitative, noticeable difference between the beers with the lower temperature variant displaying more hop aroma, uh, that's, that's just a fancy way of saying that we think that the lower temperature is going to get you more hop aroma and probably hop flavor, too. They like, two kind of go together. So you're going to need one brewing session. The uh, process is that you boil all the wort and have two vessels set aside for whirlpooling. Um, after the uh, wort is, uh, is boiled and you're ready to start chilling, uh you want to run half of that wort off to one of those vessels and uh chill it down to 120 before you start uh adding your whirlpool hops. The other one you will add the whirlpool hops as soon as you've flamed out, uh, and uh then whirlpool from there. Uh use only one whirlpool addition per vessel. Remember we don't want to get introduced too many uh Uh, variables into here so and before I get on because this is going to get confusing I just want to let you know all of this info is on the website at experimentalbrew.com so I'm just going to run through it real quick here Uh, experimental procedure is you brew enough of Jim's Whirlpool pale ale recipe to have equal fermentation portions You boil the beer. After the boil, chill both beers to 170. At this point, split half of your post-boil wort into another vessel and add the first edition of Whirlpool hops. Stir vigorously or recirculate with a pump. Continue chilling the other portion until it hits 120. Add your second edition of Whirlpool hops into that. After each kettle has steeped for 30 minutes, you finish chilling down to fermentation, and pitching temperature. You ferment both batches in the same space, same type of fermenter, same temperature. We've said it before, and it still goes here. Uh, Package the beers in exactly the same fashion, and then perform a, a blind triangle test and record the results. Ask the testers for their observations on their samples, but don't reveal any difference between the two samples. Again, when you give them the three beers, Don't say anything other than, is one of these beers different than the other two, and let them tell you. Uh, The recipe, like I said, is on the website. Uh, So get on it, brew it, let's get the results and see what we think.
1: Yeah, and I'll just say right now, the recipe that's up there is uh, Jim's Whirlpool Pale Ale. And it's a really nice kind of classical, uh, large American pale ale. Uh, with a fairly stout amount of hops. So, uh, one other thing that's going to happen out of this, uh, we're very happy to announce, uh, is that Nikobrew.com, uh, one of our sponsors, the Hop Warehouse, is providing the hops for this experiment.
0: Yay, Nico. So, Thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. We're fully taking
1: advantage of Nico and his kills. <laughs>
0: I don't know what an image that is. But, yeah, I, again, just to be certain, we want to really give a big shout-out to uh, to Nico for uh, providing the hops for this experiment. That's, uh, that's way cool of you, man. So anything else about, the, about this experiment? I mean, I, I'm,
1: I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens here because it's a good theory. But you know how theory uh, happens to some interact with reality. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, so, so yeah, so let's find out. Maybe, maybe the, we'll find out that you do need a little bit more heat than 120 to really extract all the goodies. But you know, there's only one way to really find out, and that's do the experiment. Well, and then
1: drink the beer. Yeah,
0: right. There's that too. All
1: right. Just as a reminder, everybody, uh, this is our second experiment, and what we're planning on doing as our schedule going forward is typically we'll be doing about two episodes a month, uh, given the way the calendar works out. And so the first episode of the month is going to be when we announce an experiment, like this episode. The second episode of the month, we're going to discuss the results of a previous experiment. We don't expect anybody's going to turn these beers around in two weeks. Uh, that's kind of ludicrous. So uh, most of the experiments will take us about six weeks. Sometimes they'll be longer-lived experiments. Uh, but in a typical, uh, typical fashion, our schedule should be, First episode of the month, experimental announcement. Second episode of the month, experimental results. So
0: expect next week's episode to have the results of our first experiment. Yay. I'm looking forward to that, man. That's going to be cool. So uh, we have another one of our interviews for you coming up next here. Uh, We'll be right back after we take off our lab coats and safety glasses and run that interview for you. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer, so come on in. So thanks to our sponsor, Craftmeister, Drew and I uh, visited the Bay Area. That's the San Francisco Bay Area uh, a few weeks ago, and we took advantage of the, the trip to meet with a whole bunch of different people in the beer world and talk to them and uh, interview them about uh, about various things. One of the people we talked to was Nick Impeliteri, the uh, owner and founder of the Yeast Bay, who is uh, coming out with a bunch of really, really interesting stuff. Uh, We did this uh, interview sitting outdoors at the Trappist in downtown Oakland, so you're going to hear a lot of chatter from the people around it. Uh, Just think of it as uh, additional atmosphere and getting you in the mood to have a beer. Well, it is really, we're going back to the pub. Uh, Just this time, it's the Trappist pub. That's right, that's right. So, Yeast Bay uh, is a nano startup yeast company, Uh, is that correct?
1: Yeah, they're... They're really small-focused, and I think what people should hopefully take away from this interview is uh, Nick has a real love of all things crazy bug-like, and so what he decided to do is instead of trying to set up his own big yeast company, he's actually working with White Labs. White Labs h- handles all of his yeast wrangling, and he's the one who isolates and identifies cultures that he wants White Labs to hold on to, and then they sell, uh, he sells them under his name. So, they do all the production work and he does all of the exploration, which I think you'll discover in right. the interview is his real love.
0: Yep, it certainly is. So, uh, so here we are talking to Nick Impellitary of the Yeast Bay.
1: So, uh, we're here at the uh, Trappist in beautiful downtown Oakland sharing a couple of beers. I'm having a reality check pills uh, and I'm here with uh, uh, Nick and uh, Nick of Yeast Bay, and he's about to have an Allagash White whenever it gets here. So, uh, and we're currently sitting out here on the patio, so that's the reason why you may be hearing a little bit of noise, but hey, whatever. All right, so uh, Nick, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself.
2: Yeah, my name's uh, Nick Impelliteri. I'm the owner and uh, sole proprietor of uh, The Yeast Bay. Uh, we're a small yeast company out of uh, San Leandro, California that uh, basically focuses on isolating new unique yeast and bacteria for uh, home brewers and craft brewers to use in their uh, worldly endeavors. <laughs>
1: All right, there we go. Yes, we're the Endeavors. Beer. All right, so uh, just to kick things off with uh, one of my favorite questions, uh, what is your favorite curse word?
2: Uh, probably f-. It's just like a, you can say it anyway. You can be like "fuck," You can be like "fuck," You know?
1: All right, so far so far, it seems like uh, "fuck" is the universal curse word. You'll probably hear it a lot. <laughs> Maybe it's just that we're recording in Northern California it's all the same. All right, well, here real quick. Cheers. And f- <laughs> <don't
2: go. laughs> there we go. Mmm, beer. Oh, that's good. I needed that. <laughs> i spoiled my uh, my job. Actually, has free beer now, so it's just walk up to the cooler and grab one.
1: See, now that's way different than my job. My job doesn't allow me to have any beer whatsoever. No, no booze and booze is not allowed on <laughs> property. All right. So uh, for people who don't uh, who don't know your background, uh, why don't you just go ahead and give us like the the minute long story of Nick?
2: Yeah. Well, I was I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, You know, I went to school just north of Milwaukee, uh, did my undergrad in Stevens Point. Yeah, I did my undergrad in uh, molecular microbiology with a minor in chemistry at uh, UW-Stevens Point, and uh, then did grad school at uh, UW-Madison, and then I ended up landing out here at a job at Fremont, California, working in uh, particle R&D. And uh, after four and a half years of that, I just recently started a job doing uh, more cell engineering work uh, in Emeryville. All right, uh, for those of you who aren't uh, scientifically literate, including me in this particular case, (laughs) what is cell engineering? Uh, well, basically what we try to do is we try to take organisms that people use for industrial fermentations, where they actually run a fermentation to force a a organism to produce some molecule. We just, we help them engineer those cells genetically to make whatever it's making better, make more of it, make it faster, make it under more amicable conditions.
1: All right. And so now in the beer world, tell us about the yeast bag.
2: Well, the East Bay is really all about just culturing, and you know, making unique yeast and bacteria. Uh, either culturing single strains or uh, making blends with uh, a number of strains that we isolate. Yeah, really, what we're all about is adding value to homebrewers and craft brewers by providing new organisms for them to use. Uh, you know, as an ingredient, I think yeast is it's very dynamic, and I think especially on the on the commercial scale, a lot of brewers have trouble trying to find hop contracts, which is a way that they've tried to produce unique flavors. Um, malt, you change that, you kind of change the style of the beer, so I think a lot of brewers are starting to turn to, to yeast as an alternative to produce these unique flavors for them.
1: When did you first
2: discover beer, beer? As in, like, making beer?
1: Well, like, good beer, like, like oh my, beer.
2: Oh, man, that was probably in college. Yeah, yeah. It's actually uh, Central Waters, out of Amherst. Yeah, awesome brewery. Uh, Probably some of my first good beer, I was like, holy shit, like, this is what beer should taste like. It's great. Right.
1: And so then, you know, once you got the, the beer experience, now how'd you, how'd you become a brewer?
2: I actually didn't jump into homebrewing brewing until I took one of my last classes in college. Uh, I was an advanced micro class. And uh, my teacher was just kind of using brewing as a shameless excuse, uh, using the class as a shameless excuse to just brew, you know, for free on, on the college's dime. So we had a, a, a fermentation science unit in class. And I was, you know, I was just graduating and kind of moving out on my own. I thought, you know, I kind of need a hobby, and I think this would be fun to kind of get to do science at home. So, uh, the brew we made in class went really well, and I just I got psyched from there, and yeah, kind of got out of control. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and what was the beer that you made in in class? Oh, we made a porter. porter. Yeah. Any, anything unique about it microbiologically? Nope, nope. Just like pitched 10:56. It was an extract batch. Yeah.
1: See now, this is one of those things I wish that we had done in college—make beer—but uh, we wouldn't have gotten college credit for it. So uh, obviously, right. I chose the wrong major. Yeah. All right. So now you talked a little bit uh, about uh, how you think yeast is going to be one of the big characters for brewers in terms of differentiation, making new flavors. Uh, what, what do you see the trends being? What are people moving towards, and what, and what are you trying to encourage?
2: I think definitely, brewers are moving more into kind of the funky, wild realm. So I'd say that's what we're what's the biggest growing sector of the East Bay is definitely uh, wild cultures so people are just buying brett left and right they just want to toss it in everything and see what it does you know And it's really dynamic organisms where, where you can use it in primary and you can get one flavor flavor profile out of it or you can use it in secondary in a beer that's already been fermented with something else that maybe threw out some flavor compounds is gonna take them break them down and turn them into something totally new it's a, it's a very transformative organism when it comes to the beer so it's think that's why a lot of brewers are getting psyched up about it and I think that's why I'm, I'm selling a lot more of it
1: all right so now since you produce a you're really deep into the Brett's. are you, do you ever get banned from wineries here in california
2: no i, I just try not to tell them that i, I do any of that <laughs> right. I, i'm sure they'd escort me out
1: yeah. <laughs> you do what no out 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 um
2: uh, actually friend, a friend of mine that works at a winery stays when he stays at our place he stays in our guest bedroom which is essentially my lab which probably is brett floating all over the place so maybe they get some surprise in that winery i don't know
1: well, you know, you just got to start watching the news and see if they suddenly start winning awards for different reasons, and then you can go, I can take credit for that. Um, so I know one thing that it seems that we're discovering now, or a lot of homebrewers are discovering, is that before we used to kind of treat brett as, uh, brett, it's brett. You know, that's all it is. And then people got, oh, Lambicus and Bruxellinus and, and a couple other things, and it now seems like people are starting to realize, oh, there are all of these different strains going on. Uh, can you talk about like, you know, what do you what do you see the differences and like what do you what do you want people to find in these bretts? Oh,
2: absolutely. I mean the genetic variation in Brett it, it's huge. It's probably bigger than cuz The genome is bigger uh, And I think a lot of people you're right. There was some dogma around especially Brett B I always saw this in forums like oh, you want a funky beard. It's like Brett B. She's Brett B All our isolates that we sell right now currently are Britannomyces bruxellensis at species identification level and they produce the whole gamut of, of flavors and aromas it's like funky barnyard a little bit of phenolic to just super fruity most of them are very dry yeah they just they're very unique very dynamic organisms and yeah.
1: and what do you think is the most interesting bright character you've gotten so far out of something
2: I'd probably say the, the strong strawberry notes out of our low Christy blend. I, people really dig that, and it's, it's pretty unique. I remember the first time that I did a test fermentation with it, I was kind of, you know, I fermented some, like, pale wort with it, low hops, kind of like just a background base wort so I could get a good feel for the yeast. And uh, it was, like, month to month, I'd just be tasting some beers, and all of a sudden I was just like, holy, holy f**k, this is crazy. Like, this, the strawberry was just super in your face. It was, it was amazing. I never got that character out of, out of any yeast. Which train was that again? The low Christie blend
1: Because yeah. now here, here's part of the reason why I'm fascinated by this because one of my favorite beers out there is Phantom. right And now I've been to Phantom. There's absolutely nothing consistent about Phantom whatsoever. If you, ever, if you ever go to the brewery, it looks like a falling down farmhouse because it is a falling down farmhouse that was shelled during World War II. And one thing that Phantom is known for is there's this faint strange strawberry character that hangs in the background. And the only time I've ever managed to to capture it is when Tyler King was with the brewery down in Placentia. Mm -hmm. He had an isolate of Phantom's Brett and pitched that into a beer and boom... There was this big strawberry character. So now I'm wondering, the Lochristi one that you have, or the Lochristi strain, if that... It's not the source. I know, it's not, it's not the source. <laughs> but I'm wondering if, if it may not give off some of those same characters, if people... Because nobody can find commercially the same Brett strain for Phantom.
2: Right. Well, you just got to isolate it, and a lot of it's getting lucky. I mean, I've streaked out a lot of phantom beers, and those things look more wild than lambic sometimes. I mean, they're just total microbial zoo. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah, and uh, again, similar organism, similar genetic, similar metabolic pathway. That's that's creating those same flavor compounds. Yeah.
1: All right, I command that you go and figure out which one of the Bretts in Phantom is the one that's giving the strawberry strain, and get it to me. Done. Woo! <laughs> see, power of a podcast. All right. Um. So we've talked a little bit about Brett. Uh, I do want to talk uh, a little bit because you have with your company you have a unique arrangement you know you you talked about the fact like your your office is your is actually your yeast lab and most people think oh hey you know you're running a yeast company therefore you've got sterile propagation equipment and producing uh, yeast everywhere but you've you've done it differently and I'd, I'd want you to talk a little bit about that
2: yeah i mean basically what what culturing organisms like this really boils down to is it's, it's, just, it's all technique and it's practice. If you have good technique and you practice culturing these organisms out in the open, what you really need is just what Louis Pasteur had. He had a couple alcohol lamps and a clean surface to work on. That's it. And if you're careful, you can, yeah, you can stave off contamination really easily.
1: And, and then uh, in terms of, yeah, once you isolate everything right you know you 're not you 're not making your yeast there in your in your office right so now what are you doing to to educate everybody on that
2: right so actually, um, I have to credit uh, Jim withey of Gigi yeast for this he actually when I was starting the East Bay, guy sat down and you know, I, I called him, I reached out to him on email and he said, yeah, you know, give me a call. I, I had some questions about what it's like starting a yeast company. I wasn't doing anything approaching his level and uh, he gave me probably the best piece of advice I ever got and he said, you know, it seems like you really like culturing the organisms and, and evaluating their flavor and aroma and their character, but it seems like you don't want to manufacture it. And I said, no, I had no interest in putting a huge capital investment in. Um, and he said, well, you know, what you should do is you'll pay more on the front end, but you should look at contract manufacturing. And that's just like a light bulb went in on my, oh, you know, over my head. It's like, holy shit, that's a great idea. So I reached out to some, a number of yeast companies and actually I, I didn't get a very good response. And I was, I was a little, I was pretty bummed. I thought it just wasn't going to work because no matter what, I wasn't going to do it myself. I wasn't going to manufacture it. And uh, all of a sudden neighbor from white labs got to me and we started a really great dialogue. And, you know, she went back and forth with Chris and, and it just, it worked out really well. You know, it took about four to six months to cultivate the relationship but uh yeah it was pretty much the second half of 2013 we worked everything out and we launched in 2014 it's been going great yeah it's, it's a wonderful relationship white labs the people are phenomenal they're awesome to work with
1: well, and, uh, and i was gonna say you, you briefly mentioned neva neva, uh, neva parker from white labs who i forget exactly what her title is now it's like director of lab operations yeah and and uh, neva is basically the the Hands and uh, the the hands of White Labs. She's the one who makes it makes it actually operate. She's
2: like the, everything on the operations end, yeah. She's she's great. She's you know, just she's total wealth of knowledge. And yeah, I mean, obviously they're willing to take risks too. You know, I mean, I was probably a huge gamble for them, and it's, I think it's worked out. But um, yeah, you know, they they I think they really thought outside of the box and thought, hey, let's try to diversify our lineup. So I, I'm I, I tell people it's it's kind of like this. I'm kind of an R and D arm for White Labs, and they're a contract manufacturing arm for me so it's it's a it's a good kind of give and take relationship
1: well and what i think is interesting is that yeah a lot of people talk about oh hey you know contract brewing or partner brewing yeah and people understand those terms but i i think really with you it's like the first time i've ever heard of oh i i have a a manufacturing partnership a contract partnership for yeast so that's kind of a interesting different i like the fact that you say hey it gives me the ability to focus on you know the stuff i love
2: yeah absolutely I think with respect to the marketplace of you know people being interested in new yeast and new yeast companies, I think that gave us instant credibility from a quality perspective that people said, okay, this guy's isolating unique stuff. Well, maybe he makes it like shit and there's like contaminated, got all sorts of issues. But when they see the White Lab's name behind it, they know that it's going to be quality. It's made in a professional facility that has you know state-of-the-art techniques. It's...
1: I mean, you know, at some point in time, I mean, who knows, maybe at some point you'll wander off and go do your own thing if you ever decide that's going to be your thing, but you for know,
2: now... Funny is a, lot of, a lot of people ask me, and I, I always tell them, no, I, I don't think I would. I Like the relationship that I have with White Labs is, is so good, I don't, I don't think I'd change it. It's, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's, it's going very well and, and I, I enjoy what I do for my day job too, so I, I would never want to give that up. So I've, I found a happy medium where I can kind of, I can, have, I can have a wife, I can have a day job, I can have a side business you know i can sleep every now and then <laughs>
1: sleep's overrated but but what it sounds like is you are the yeast manufacturer equivalent of uh, denny and i where you know you love to make you love to explore the yeast but you don't want to do it professionally full time and denny and i love to do the beer thing but we are going to be the last two homebrewers in america to ever open up a brewery so <laughs>
0: i just said never never never
1: yeah. all right so uh Let's go on to a little bit of beer, uh, beer talk now. You're having an Allagash White right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, what beer do you find yourself longing to drink?
2: Honestly, this is one of the ones that I drink. Every time I go somewhere where I know they serve it, I'll get it. It's, especially at the end of a lawn day, super refreshing. Like the pear and citrus esters, phenomenal. It's a nice dry beer, a little earthy. It's, and a lot of that is actually the yeast character. I've isolated this yeast before. I've evaluated it. It's, it's phenomenal. It's very good stuff. Their house strain is... About as good as it gets in terms of Belgian yeast, especially for pale warts, it's great.
1: Well, there you go. Do you have any fermentation recommendations for people trying to, to do that sort of stuff?
2: Like an Allagash White style? Oh, definitely. I mean, their yeast, I haven't used it extensively in dark wort, but I've used it a ton in pale wort. It's Like... Belgian style wits, Belgian pales, and yeah, those those two styles are phenomenal with this yeast. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: All right. So now, obviously, you get to play around with a lot of unusual strains. So this uh, this question may be a little cheating for you or a little easy. But uh, what's the most unusual beery thing you've ever done?
2: The most unusual. You know, I've, I've tried a number of sources like outside, like bioprospecting, sim- similar to, I don't know if you've heard of, a, uh, 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 I believe it's South Yeast. It's a small yeast up. They do all bioprospecting, really cool stuff. And they've, they've got that down to a science. I've tried culturing off of fruit, off the air. I've never gotten a lot of luck. And then finally, I, just, I keep banging my head against the wall, like, why I'm not getting anything here. And then I finally tell myself, like, why don't I just go to the sources that I know are are good and have something unique in them that, that I'll be able to to at least isolate and, and try out in, in short order. So it's like if I'm trying to get Brett, I almost always go to Lambics because it's essentially like a ready-made culture for me. They made the wort, put it on top of the building for a little bit, you know, in the cool ship, let it hang out, whatever fell in, fell in, and it fermented. And that's like, I, I essentially am able to capture wild microbes via the Lambic fermentation.
1: So in other words, you're using? It's
2: cheating, I'm like bioprospecting, but it's cheating.
1: Well, in other words, you're using the Lambic brewers as your contract uh, <laughs> yeast harvesters or bacteria harvesters. Right. Exactly. All right. Um, well, and.
2: There seems to be a trend with that business model with me.
1: <laughs> I never noticed that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 the lazy man's way of making a business or something. I, I don't know. We'll figure out a better term for that than that. Um, so, well, now actually, let's talk a little bit about the bioprospecting bio because I, I think that's interesting. Because one thing I've noticed, and I don't know if this is your experience, but the only time I've seen that work. Uh, and uh, for the audience out there, if you don't know bioprospecting, basically the idea is uh, capturing natural yeast and bacteria from natural sources without like going to a beer manufacturer or something like that. Uh, you see a lot of people doing things off of fruit, like throw fruit into some wort and see what you get. Uh, or uh, leave exposed jars of wort to an environment and see what grows. A lot of times you fail miserably and sometimes you get something interesting. A lot of times you fail miserably. Um, <laughs> And in fact, I think the only time I've ever really seen it work is people doing it in relatively agricultural areas. You know, like, hey, you know, I'm in a, an orchard or something like that because there's interesting stuff floating around there. Uh, I've tried to do it in... Uh, in my hometown of Pasadena yeah. and I've gotten one thing out of probably about 20 attempts. That I actually did something interesting and the rest of them were terrible. Yeah. But then again, I also live about a quarter of a mile from a freeway. Yeah. So probably a bad environment. So uh, yeah, any thoughts? Got
2: a lot of, a lot of, a lot of airflow from all the moving cars, you know, it's probably whipping stuff around might be some interesting stuff out there.
1: There you go. All right. Um, so what is the worst thing to ever happen to you while brewing?
2: Oh, Hmm. That's tough. I mean, I've never really hurt myself. I'd say the worst thing, which really isn't that bad, um, once I was probably drinking too much. It's back in Milwaukee. I was draining my mash tun into my boil kettle, and I had the uh, ball valve open on my boil kettle, and I just kind of walked away and noticed it. Come back, and there's like eight gallons of wort all over my floor.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's when the, that's when you start. To, that's when you start to learn the lesson of, uh, hey, uh, don't drink while brewing.
2: I, I limit myself now. I have a beer in the mash then a beer during the louder, and then I have one when I'm done brewing. I try to limit myself to three.
1: See, and that's even more than what uh, Denny does, because, uh, Denny, you don't have anything until you're done, right?
0: No, man, I uh, I get started early, I finish early, and then I reward myself with about five beers.
1: Denny likes to load all of his beers into one short window. All right. have a word for that, right? Yeah, I think it's called binge. All right, so what... Common wisdom brewing practice, do you see out there that is either, to your mind, wrong or people overinflate the importance of?
2: I don't know if I can come up with a good answer for that one, but I can tell you one that that I think people treat a little bit cavalierly, and they think it's not a big deal, and it really is. And that's fermentation temperature. Um, Yeast do really weird shit when you get out of their preferred temperature range, and these strains have you know, different windows that are good. And I see a lot of people all the time, like they have their first beer and they're like, oh, dude, like I did everything right. And it's like, okay, well, what'd you do with the carboy? Well, I like set it in my room. Oh, how hot is your room? Oh, it's like 80. Well, well, that's not going to do anything good the, for the yeast, you know, and it's shooting out all kind of off flavors. And I'd say that's definitely one of the things that brewers, especially a lot of new ones, don't put enough weight on. And I always tell people the first major investment you should make, do not go from extract to all grain. Get yourself fermentation temperature control. It's the best thing you will ever do.
1: Yeah, and I I totally agree. And and actually, I think in a little bit, I'm going to have an article out there about, hey, you know, extract doesn't actually suck. It's just mostly new brewers who suck. Well,
2: I agree with that 100%. (laughs) I agree with that 100%. All
1: right. uh, So now, obviously, you've played around with a lot of interesting uh, strains of things, but uh, what? What sort of interesting discovery do you think you can give to the audience that you've discovered about brewing while you've been doing it or playing around with
2: yeast? Well, I think uh, some more dogma around yeast is that it doesn't grow well on lab media. Like, you've gotta have maltose present, otherwise the yeast will somehow lose the ability to to ferment maltose, which is total bullshit. Um, It actually works really well to culture things, and I tell people if you're trying to get the highest cell counts, using lab media you're gonna get the highest cell counts. That goes for Brett and Sack. And if you look at uh, Chad Jakobson's research, his, uh, his his project on Brett, you look at him growing in Wort versus MYPG, which is lab media. And uh, that lab media, it's produced way more cells.
1: All right, for you know, that
2: one, I think does have uh, MYPG does have maltose in it, but still, like the lab based media, just a super rich media. It's, it works fantastic for growing organisms. I typically use YPD, which is yeast peptone dextrose, for like initial plating and culturing things like that.
1: All right, and for people who aren't, you know, lab scientists, yeah, if they wanted to, if they wanted to replicate some of this and play with YPD or what was the uh, the other one was, uh, YPG, in YPG. YPD with some
2: maltose. Right. If
1: if people normal brewers like you know say Denny wanted to play around with that, how how would they be able to get uh,
2: get their hands on that? My recommendation is get yourself some lab media from any any different host to play. I mean, you can just type in YPD media and you'll come up with page after page of places to buy it. Um, But what you really need to do, if you're isolating organisms, you really need, you you can't just sanitize it by boiling it. You really should sterilize it. And that's, I mean, pressure cooker is a great investment. Uh, You can also pressure can wort for starters. It's fantastic. It's super quick. That way, you know, you just have all this wort on hand. You're not boiling every time you're trying to make a starter. So if you're brewing like every week or two, you're not constantly making a starter. Just pop one out of the fridge and get her going. But yeah, I'd say um, like media, Petri dishes, some streaking loops, um, and a pressure cooker, and, and and an alcohol lamp, or just a blowtorch. You're good to go.
1: So it seems like you know, for a little over a hundred dollars, based on how big your pressure cooker is, you could get started in doing all the yeast culturing stuff that you wanted, right?
2: I started. I started my company with about two thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So it was with an expensive incubator, so it doesn't take a lot of equi- It doesn't take a lot of fancy equipment. And actually, you know, my first incubator, when I very first started doing it, like really just like just started out and I was like, I'm going to try to give this a go. It was a, a Rubbermaid container that I insulated around the sides and put a heating pad under. And then I I, drew, I literally drilled holes in it. And then I would take these little insulation pegs out to adjust the temperature to where I needed it to be. It was, it was pretty janky, but it worked. It worked fantastic.
0: That's pretty much the definition of cheap and easy right there.
2: (laughs) Well,
1: and I was also going to say, uh, for the other obligatory plug for experimental homebrewing, if you want a a good recipe for how to pressure can starter wort, just pick up our book. It's right in there. See, look, that's the the ad announcer voice, man. All right. Uh, Let's see. Uh, All right. Now, this one's going to be, uh, this one's a a three-part question. All right hopefully, easy parts. Oh, actually, two of them should be easy. One of them will probably be really hard for you. All right. What are your favorite malt, hop, and yeast?
2: Oof. Malt, I'd say probably Maris Otter. Um, love using it in barley wines. I actually make like a black barley wine. It's I, I roll through that pretty quick. It's yeah, it's fantastic beer, and yeah, that, the malt gives it a lot of character. I like it. It's like a really rich two-row. Um, favorite hop. <sighs> I'd have to be boring and say something like Citra Galaxy. That's what I've been hopping all my like breaded saisons with recently, and I just it, the character, and it's just it's great. It's easy to go overboard though. I've had times where I've added way too much. And it's like holy sht This is just it's just a little bit too much. Um, favorite yeast?
1: Now we get to the hard one. Which of your children?
2: Dun, 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 dun. Huh. I would honestly probably have to say our saison blend. Both strains in there are really good. Um, yeah, either that or our, our Northeastern Abbey. Another fantastic one.
1: Uh, and and I, I've used your Saison blend, and I think it's up on my Saison guide. Nice. And it, it is it is, it is actually a really wonderful strain, uh, or really wonderful blend. So I've, I heartily, enthusiastically recommend that. Um, all right. So uh, what is something that you wish that more people would drink or explore?
2: I think just wild and sour beer in general. I think people, I guess they're, they're opening up their minds to it a little more now, especially with breweries like Rare Barrel, whose sole mission is just create good sour beer. And uh, But that was one of those beers that I think for a long time people were like, it doesn't really, like they, they try a little sip and they're like, oh, it tastes weird. It doesn't taste like beer I'm used to drinking. And uh, I've actually talked to Jay Goodwin a lot about this, and that was like the whole impetus of them starting the Rare Barrel was that, They wanted to produce beer that people didn't have that reaction anymore. That they thought, holy shit, this is great. Like, this is what sour beer can be. And that's.
1: All right, so more sours coming in the future, please, people. All right, Uh, so now. All right, uh, last couple ones. uh, All right. So looking at bre- uh, brewing and beers, uh, what are some favorite flavors that, that, that you love to explore? You talked a little bit about lo- loving Citra and Galaxy, and those are those obviously fruit ones. You have your breads. Are there other flavors that you like to explore and play with?
2: I'd say definitely we're, we're more fruit forward with with most of our bread strands. That's the kind of character I go for. I think it's either that or a balance of kind of fruity, funky farmhouse character. The Brussels blend is one that's like super funky, and that was one that we, we isolate, and it's like, wow, this is... It's a funk bomb, and it just it takes whatever base beer was there. If you use it in secondary, just just destroy, destroys all the flavor compounds. just turns into a funk machine. But definitely, like, the fruity flavors and aromas in beer, that's I, I definitely look for those in, in a lot of yeast strands and a lot of yeast styles. So. All
1: right. And then uh, do you have any other thoughts about brewing, like how people can make, you know, since we're talking sour beers and and you have all these bright cultures uh, as well, these funky cultures, any other thoughts that you think – People really need to understand if they want to make really high quality funky or sour beers.
2: I would say don't be afraid to repitch your mixed culture. A lot of people freak out about it and they worry about the proportions. Don't worry. All the organisms that are there are there, and they're going to do what they need to do when it's their time to do it. And I think people put too much emphasis on well, it's you know we have a blend of it's forty percent Brett and and you know twenty uh, percent. Uh, Sac and then another 40% lacto and PDO, and people are like, I can't upset that. And it's like, well, when you ferment your first beer, it's already fucking screwed. Like, it's already all over the place. So, if you get a good culture, and especially when you're dumping dregs in, you get something really unique, like bottle that up, make glycerol stocks of it in the freezer, like keep that. Hold on to it and keep using it. And I think a lot of people are kind of nervous about it, especially with sour beer, you shouldn't, because they, you know, I think most people worry about reusing yeast because of infections, but sour beer, I mean.
1: It's already infected.
2: <laughs> it's already infected. Exactly. All
1: right, and then the uh, last question: uh, What non-beer thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with?
2: I think I'm just obsessed with getting outside. I'm not able to do it that much anymore, but hiking, kayaking, really just going anywhere with my wife, doing something outside—it's definitely my favorite thing to do.
1: All right, and well, it sounds like what you need to do is like you know, get into a kayak and put some petri dishes up on the front so you just can
2: run on the paddle. just... <laughs> sold it up.
1: Yeah. Coming uh, coming soon from the East Bay uh Brett Santa, uh, San Francisco Bayes.
2: <laughs> I actually did try culturing some stuff from our last trip, and it, it didn't work out well.
1: Well, that's a so shame. The,
2: the, the plates look pretty gnarly. I, I didn't even I didn't even I didn't even try. <laughs>
1: you know, it, you know it has to be scary if the if the wild and funky guy looks at the plates and goes, "Nope. No good." <laughs> All right. And uh, before uh, before we leave you uh where can people uh, find your strains, and uh, do you have anything new and interesting coming up online that they should pay attention to?
2: Hopefully. So, uh, at uh, www.theyeastbay.com, that's our main website where you can, if you're in the United States, you can buy our cultures directly from homebrewers, and it also has uh, uh, commercial pitch information uh, for commercial brewers all around the world. And also, we sell uh, wholesale to homebrew home shops and uh, uh, in the United States and just abroad all over the world. So all that information is on the commercial order section of our website. And uh, we actually do have some exciting stuff coming up. We have a a few brett strains that we isolated recently from a very unique beer. Uh, It was a collaboration beer between a brewery in the United States and and one in Europe. And it was fermented 100% with brett. Fantastic isolates. We've gotten out of there, and we're hoping to have some single strand brett isolates that are just really good in 100% brett fermentations.
1: And, and of course, that one from the strawberry one from Phantom, right? That's coming up, right?
2: Uh, (laughs) I'm working on it. We actually, uh, the Brett that I've isolated recently from that beer, I'm actually doing for, uh, uh, that was a project for a local brewer in town. So very excited about it.
1: All right, awesome. And, well, uh, everybody, uh, you know, please definitely check out the Yeast Bay. Uh, I, like I said, I've used a couple of a couple of the Saison strains in my Saison project, and they are awesome, and I'm still waiting to get to get down the line into more of the bread stuff, but I think that's going to be in part of my brew year's resolutions. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Nick, for uh, coming out and uh, sharing a beer with us and, yeah. uh, and talking to the audience.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Drew. All right. All right. Cheers, man. Okay, that was Drew and me talking to Nick Impellitteri of the Yeast Bay in San Francisco about some of the cool stuff that he's doing. Thank you very much for your time, Nick. We really appreciated that. We're gonna take a break right now. We'll be back with uh, Q and A, which ought to be interesting. And uh, we'll have the quick tip of the week. And Drew will be talking about something besides beer. What does happen? It's question and answer time, and man, we have some interesting ones today. Uh, I hardly know what to say about some of these, so I won't. Drew, take the first one.
1: All right. So the first one comes from uh, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Misner, uh, who actually contacted and tagged us on Facebook. Uh, there's lots of ways that you can get us to answer questions, and we will gladly steal anybody's questions that we see just to be able to answer them here. Uh, so Jimmy uh, actually tagged me on Facebook earlier today. Jimmy writes, I was thinking of using dried white mulberry in an IPA. About one gallon I've split from a five-gallon batch party guile. The berries have high levels of iron and protein, and I was curious if and how this could be detrimental to the finished product. All right, so one good job on uh, recognizing that this was a good area to do a split uh, experiment with because, frankly, let's tackle both uh, both the things that you're worried about. Uh, Protein. You hear a lot of things from commercial brewers about controlling protein levels in beer. Really, why do they worry about it? The problem for protein is it induces haze, and it can also induce harsh flavor characteristics. Now, with an IPA, I don't think you're ever going to notice protein uh, harshness. That's really more of a concern for the big guys who are trying to brew the least flavorful beer possible. But you may notice a haze, but again, you're in an IPA. Who cares? The other worry is also that protein can affect shelf stability. You're a home brewer. Don't worry about it. Keep it cold. Uh, So protein, I don't care so much about unless you're really obsessed with having crystal clear beer. Now, the bigger concern to me is iron. Because iron is one of those sensations, one of those organoleptic sensations that is very distinctive and very off-putting. If you ever had a beer, or water even, that has iron in it, The very first thing that you'll notice, if it's above the sensory threshold, is it tastes like blood. Our palates just interpret iron as bloody. So, a great commercial example of this, and I haven't actually seen it in years. There's a Belgian brewery called Ciney, C-I-N-E-Y, they make Abbey Ales. And for years, and I don't know if they've ever corrected this because I haven't had it recently, their water was extremely high in iron, which meant every time you had their double or something,
0: it felt like you were drinking a bloody double.
1: So the iron is what concerns me because,
0: you know, but but I I think maybe you hit on it though. When you were talking about the, uh, the threshold we have, we have a lot of vagaries here. Number one, uh, Jimmy says mulberries have high levels of iron and protein, but we don't know how high. We also don't know how much it takes to really be a detriment. Mm -hmm. So I I think that in this this case... Unfortunately, uh, iron
1: is one of those things that is... The sensory threshold is very low. Uh,
0: Yeah, I know. But again, how much do mulberries have? How much will end up in your beer because of it? it? It could be a problem. We just don't know, which is why I think Jimmy has exactly the right approach, as you mentioned by splitting off a gallon and experimenting to see what happens. Yeah,
1: well, and my suggestion would actually be to not only do the split, but start light. Uh, don't yeah. uh, don't go for a big honking dose of the mulberries. Start, uh, start with a fairly light amount of mulberries. Go look at, uh, like, spicing for, or additions for dried blueberries or something like that. Mm-hmm. And start at the low end of the threshold on that and see what that does. Because again, iron is something that iron is something that we're very sensitive to as humans.
0: And I think that that's really good advice for any time you're adding an unusual flavoring element to a beer. Start light. Plan on brewing it more than once. You know, well, uh, you can
1: and unless add more the next well, time. Well, and unless you're, uh, I mean, unless you're really like uh, concerned about how fast you can turn around bottles or kegs. If you're doing a split batch like this, you can go ahead and you can put an addition of the mulberries in a nice light addition. Leave them there for you know one week to two weeks, take a taste sample, and then if that sample isn't mulberry-ish enough, then go add a few more and wait another week or two. Yeah. So unless you've got a pretty simple yeah, unless you've got a time crunch here, there's an absolute diehard deadline that you need to have this by, yeah, just take a sample. The sample will tell you a lot.
0: Yep. Okay, our next question comes from Mike, whose online username is Enzio. Mike says I received some WLP five fifteen a few days ago to experiment with. As I pulled it out to acclimate it for my starter, I don't know why you're doing that. I noticed a black dot, for lack of a better term, located in the east. I have never witnessed this in any form of any of my white lab vials before. Any thoughts? Well, yeah, uh maybe maybe you're just seeing spots in front of your eyes, huh? You know, I, I've never seen anything like that before either, uh, and it's really kind of hard to tell what it means, so we uh, we got a hold of Neva Parker at uh, White Labs, uh, the laboratory manager, I believe is her term.
1: I think Neva's like the director of all things Brewing Awesomeness.
0: Okay, I, that's a great title, man. I, I need a big name badge to get it on there. But anyway, uh, Neva's response was kind of like, hell if I know. Uh I'd have to see it to really know what's going on. So obviously this is not a common thing. It could be a spot of ink that got on there. It could be a tiny spot of mold in the yeast. You know, it could be anything ranging from nothing to very serious. Well,
1: and, and in, in fairness, uh, Nava's direct answer was she'd need to see a, a picture to tell what it was for certain. But... More than likely, her guess would be that it was a spot of caramelized wort that made it through the production cycle.
0: Yeah, I mean, my general reaction would be to not be too worried about it. Go ahead, make a starter, smell the starter, taste it, and if it's good, it's good. That's all there is to it. So, uh, so that's kind of a non-answer, Mike. Sorry, but the uh, best we can tell you is make a starter. Check it out and decide for yourself, buddy. And
1: enjoy that Antwerp yeast. But like I said, even Nathan's even kind of saying that it's probably nothing much. Okay, Drew, next question is yours. All right, our next question comes from John Hunter. Who, uh, bear with us, this is a long question. Denny's chicken cube resolution triggered a long dormant question in the back of my mind that was based on a loosely remembered concept of cooking eggs in a water bath around 150 degrees for an hour or so, which of course made me think of a mash tun. Turns out this egg technique is sometimes called sous-vide style eggs, where an egg, still in its shell, is left for 45 minutes or longer in the sack rest temperature range, with the time and temperature variables affecting the final texture. So the obvious question becomes, is there any reason a brewer wouldn't want to cook an egg or two while mashing? Apart from this sounding like a bad idea to start with, help me think it through, please. Sure, you run a risk of breaking an egg in your mash, but would that be so bad as to never risk a try? I'm thinking the fat in the yolk might have the greatest consequence on the beer if the shell were to crack in the mash. I know the fat in beer is to be avoided, though I don't totally know what the consequences was. Apart from this sounding like a bad idea to start with, help me think it through, please. Sure, you run a risk of breaking an egg in your mash, but would that be so bad as to never risk a try? I'm thinking the fat in the yolk might have the greatest consequence on the beer if the shell were to crack while in the mash. I know fat in beer is avoided, though I don't totally know what consequences it has. But yolks also solidify when in boiling water, so would it have the same impact? Ideally, the proteins would get cleaned up with the hot break. But if it is cooked in the shell and assuming you'd want to pull the egg out whenever the mash is stirred, might it be worth a shot? All right, so, <clears throat> John, uh, real quick, I love sous vide cooking. It's something I do all the time. Uh, I think a lot of people are starting to get into sous vide now thanks to uh, cheap cookers that are available. used to be that you had to spend thousands of dollars in order to pull this trick off. But you're totally right. Um For anybody who doesn't know, sous vide cooking is effectively super high temperature controlled like brewers do for mash, but for cooking. So instead of just having boil or cold or, you know, simmering water or high flame heat, you actually have the ability to dial in your temperatures. So yeah, sous vide eggs or the 65 degree egg or all sorts of different names that it has, totally doable at a mash range. I would totally uh, think it's a thing to do, to give it a try. Now, You're right that at mash temperatures, you're going to get different textures based on how long you let it sit in. But for the most part, it's right in that territory of 45 to 65 to 70 minutes uh, at 150 degrees is one of the desired temperature ranges. So go for it. Have yourself breakfast.
0: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like, yeah, it's like if you want to do it, sure, fine. I'm not sure that... uh, it's all that exciting a uh, thing for me. But, uh, but yeah, you know, to me, it raises a question about going the other way. What about using a, an immersion circulator like you'd use for making sous vide in your mash tun? Ever thought about that? Yeah, the
1: problem comes that most of the sous vide circulators that are out there on the market, uh, particularly for home use, are limited, I think, uh, generally somewhere below 20 liters in terms of total volume. But, uh. but most importantly... Importantly, they're not designed to circulate liquid that has sugar and solids in it. So, oh, sure. Yeah, they're they're just these little impellers attached around a, a heating element. So they're really just... The dis- sugars would... Yeah, right. And the sugars would gum up the heating element, right? And the propeller. So... Yeah. Right. Uh, now, there, that isn't to say, though, that people aren't doing this. I've seen some experiments, and I actually want to try this later this year, where people are doing mash grains in a bag or a jar... And sticking that in a water bath that is then controlled by a sous vide controller. So it is completely possible. But I think we should also tackle John's other question about the fat in the beer. Because he's like, well, what happens if it breaks? All right. So we typically avoid fat in beer. And people get obsessed with beer clean glasses where all the fat's been scrubbed out. And the real reason for that is fat interferes with heading. So the more fat that that you expose things to, the less head that you get. Remember that the primary constituent of beer foam is a protein called albumin, and albumin is the exact same protein that you find in egg whites. And so, just like where they tell you if you're going to try and make a meringue or egg foam, you want to make sure that you get zero egg yolk into your egg whites, it's the same thing with uh, beer, because the egg yolk would interfere with the albumin's ability to be able to form a foam. Now, having said that, John's point about, oh, well, you know, all this stuff gets cooked, I think you're probably right there. It's gonna, a good portion of the fat would get entrained in the mash, and what didn't get entrained in the mash would probably get meshed up with something in the boil. Uh, my bigger worry would be less about heading and more about potential uh, because fats do go bad over time. So that would actually be my real concern. However, having said all that, you know what? Throw your eggs in the mash done. Just be careful, and you know, at least for that first 30 minutes, be careful how you're stirring everything, and I think you'll be fine.
0: And maybe, maybe uh, if you are bound and determined to do this, uh, put the egg in a plastic bag before it goes into your mash tun, so if it breaks, the mess is contained. Yeah,
1: just make sure to suck out all the air, just like you're doing a sous vide bag for a steak or anything else.
0: Right, right. Okay, last question today comes from Brad Hillebrand, who writes, "My question comes to mash efficiencies. I recently purchased a pump to recirculate wort in the mash tun on a RIMS." Efficiencies are in the 60% area. I adjust the mash pH to between 5.2 and 5.5, and at the end of the mash, I drain as slow as I can. My efficiency was higher when I just let the mash sit and then batch sparge twice. Excuse me here. This is uh, where I do my little happy dance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, going on. Why does this happen? I've read that the Blickman Brew-Easy does the same thing. Efficiency is lower even though the mash is being recirculated. Common knowledge would suggest that recirculating a mash should increase sugar production. Can you explain this phenomena? Uh, probably not, but uh, we'll try anyway. Okay, so let's kind of take this uh, step by step. Uh... Common knowledge would suggest that recirculating a mash would increase sugar production. Maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, Efficiency was higher when he just batch sparged. Um, One of the things that I can think of that might be an issue here is his wort return system. Uh, Maybe it's not being spread evenly enough over his mash. Um, and it's kind of like channeling down and extracting sugars just from one place. Uh, if he's using his old batch sparge mash tun, and it has the single braid down the middle, uh, as great as that laddering design is for batch sparging, um, it is not at all suitable for fly sparging. You need to distribute your, uh, your laddering system more. Um, I'm also a little curious about his comment about he's read that the Blickman Brew he does the same thing. I haven't heard that anywhere, and I I have a hard time imagining that uh, they would design a system like that. And, and you actually contacted John Blickman about this, right? Yeah,
1: I, I did. And uh, I said, so, John, I've got this comment out here, and I just want to see what your response is and see if maybe you know something, because after all, John does spend a lot of time with his equipment and would, uh, would know this sort of thing and understand why. And I think if I remember correctly, his response was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? So uh, at least uh, uh, Blickman, it, it, he seems to be of the uh, of the operating opinion that this is not a thing for the easy. however, uh, that may be in some people's experience. I would I would guess a lot of it is going to come down to workflow through the cooler or whatever mash vessel that, that is that you're using. Uh, I think some people tend to think recirculation will increase efficiency because you are uh, sort of constantly washing the grain, right? So picking up starch, pulling it into into the wort, hopefully exposing it to uh, enzymes so that it can then be converted into sugar, and keeping it from getting uh, sort of stuck in your your mash. So I, I get why people think that that might be the case, but in this in this particular case, I'm going to guess that the the real culprit is drainage. And you probably have corners of the mash that are still sort of uh, wet with a lot of sugar.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, you know, and again, there are just like like a lot of these questions turn out to be there are too many unknowns here to really uh, be very certain about anything. So, uh, I would say, Brad, start by taking a look at the design of your wort return and laddering systems, and see if you can find anything there that might be a, a cause for this. So, because uh, Drew and I don't know everything, or as some people will say, we don't know anything, we started up a discussion on the AHA discussion forum asking people for what some of their quick tips were. Uh, So, we're going to be shooting those at you over the next few weeks. Today's comes from uh, Dilla98, and unfortunately, I don't know Dilla98's real name. Dilla's tip is mise en place now drew and i both uh, have come from cooking backgrounds drew uh, did it professionally for a while i just did it as a hobby for a long long time mise en place is the french cooking term for putting in place meaning getting everything ready and prepped before you start brewing uh i'm a i'm a moderately ocd kind of person uh I'm ocd enough that i actually prefer it C-D-O, because the letters are in the right order that way. Uh, but I really, really am a big believer in not running around frantically while I'm brewing and having everything ready to go. Before I have a, a set of Ziploc bags, for instance, that are marked 1st uh, Word Hop, 60, 45, 30, 15, 10, 5, 0, and Whirlpool. And I weigh all my hop additions into each one of those bags before I start, so I put them all in the order that I'm going to be using them so I uh, don't grab the wrong one when I'm going for them, because just because they're marked doesn't mean I'm going to read it. I weigh out all my mineral additions way in advance and wrap them uh, in little pieces of aluminum foil ready to dump in when the time is right. I uh, measure my strike and sparge water the day before. What I want to do is walk into the brewery, turn on the burner, and have everything right there so I can just reach out and grab it when I brew instead of having to suddenly run back to the house and weigh out my hops or weigh out my water salts or get my yeast ready to go. So there's the word for today, kids, mise en place, get organized before you start brewing. It was one of my uh, brew years resolutions. And uh, I think you'd enjoy it too. Okay. Well, believe it or not, uh, Drew and I do have a few interests outside of the beer world. So uh, Drew, what's, what's hot and new that isn't beer? All
1: right. Well, Uh, No big surprise, I can't always be drinking the beer because society disapproves of morning drinking and day drinking, and there's the whole thing about, uh, you should probably work sober. I don't know. So, for those of us who can't drink beer during the day, coffee seems to be our day drink of choice, and I never really liked coffee until a few years ago, and the reason was is that I just didn't like it. I was like, no, coffee, that's for the birds. But what I had discovered a couple of years back was, it turns out I actually really love coffee flavor. I just really hate drinking hot beverages. So, things really kind of took a turn for me on the on the coffee side of the world when I discovered cold-brewed coffee. Now, iced coffee is one thing, you know, pour hot coffee over ice and da da you've got coffee that's cold but diluted. Uh, cold-brewed coffee is something completely different where you basically never expose the coffee grounds to the heat. And instead, you mix it with coffee and water, uh, coarsely ground, and let it sit overnight, and then somehow filter it out in the morning, and you get this sort of uh, coffee concentrate. And you use that, you pour that over ice, mix it with milk or sugar or water, or whatever it is that you want to do, or possibly even hot water if you want to make it hot. And you enjoy that. And the idea is that you get less acidity, less acrid characters, more sweetness, more of the kind of big coffee aromas and flavors and also a fair amount of caffeine uh, extracted via this overnight extraction process. Now, I had been doing all this with a French press, uh, but for Christmas, uh, my sister and my brother-in-law gave me a, uh, a toddy, a T-O-D-D-Y. And basically what it is, it's a big plastic bucket with a coarse filter that goes in the bottom and a stopper that's also in the bottom. You sort, you, you, you soak uh, coarse ground coffee uh, overnight, cold filter water, Leave it on your counter, and in the morning you put the toddy on top of the pitcher that comes with the device, and you pull the stopper out, and you let it drain. And what you get out of it is this just this gloriously rich coffee uh, concentrate slash syrup. And you just let it flow into it, and then that concentrate stays good for at least two weeks uh, in your fridge. And every morning I just wake up, I fill a pint glass with ice, about two thirds of the way up with water. And the other third of the way with a coffee concentrate. uh, stir that together and enjoy. And I drink about two of those per day, uh, which keeps me perfectly well caffeinated and buzzing. But it's really incredibly tasty stuff. It's lower in acid, it's sweeter, and it's super, super intense. The process itself is straightforward. You do use more coffee. It's less efficient that way. Uh, but it's relatively inexpensive to get into, and it turns even cheap coffee into really good cold brewed coffee. So I think the toddy itself is about 40 bucks, and boy, I'm really enjoying that thing.
0: You know, and I'm I'm not a fan of cold coffee, iced coffee. I like my coffee hot, but I do like uh, the flavor from cold brewed coffee, so uh, I think I'm going to have to look into that. So. Yeah,
1: and hey, it makes good beer additions.
0: Makes good beer additions? Yeah. Oh, I, I see. Yeah, right. Okay, we're back to the weirdness again. Okay, so it's time for our question of the week, and it's simple and straightforward today. Are you ready for some hop madness? Uh, We are about to start uh, our next experiment, which involves whirlpool hopping. Uh, Let us know what your opinions are. Let us know if you want to get involved, Uh, and you can do that by writing to us at Igor at experimentalbrew.com. Drew, why don't you go ahead and do the recap for the week? So what
1: did, we, what did we talk about this week? Well, we got our feedback on everybody's brew year's resolutions and what people are trying to do. Uh, we also talked a little bit about uh, last week's explosive tasting segment and, uh, you know, more tastings coming forward hopefully soon. Uh, we talked a little bit about a competition that's coming forward. Uh, we also talked about the world of Anheuser-Busch and their acquisitions and a little bit about hypocrisy and the funny times of that. Don't forget, Denny's going to be in Vail coming soon. Uh We talked about our second experiment, all about hops, and we talked to Nick of Yeast Bay about yeast and the fun that you can have with it. Uh, Don't forget, coming soon in our next episode, our first experimental results will be posted. We'll be uh, closing up our Bay Area trip with uh, possibly a (laughs) two-parter discussion with the one and only Roger Davis of uh, Faction Brewing.
0: Yeah, that was a that was a wide ranging discussion and uh, I'm still working on editing it and uh who knows where it's gonna go. It may be one part, it may be two parts.
1: That's yes, Dine has never heard so much swearing in his life.
0: I'm I'm using the uh the bleeper uh or liberally on Roger, but uh you know, what the heck.
1: Yeah. But yeah, so all in all, a great episode and great episodes to come.
0: Yeah, so uh thanks a bunch guys for joining us here on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Uh we are at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And we're probably like uh, on Drew's phone somewhere too. Uh Multiple. if you want <laughs> if you want to uh, ask us questions, suggest topics or recipes or experiments or just rant and rave. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or you can email us each individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com. He's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So thanks for coming along on the ride. See you in a couple weeks. Until then, remember, brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.